Good to have each of you here this morning. We are in for a treat uh, and a challenge. Uh, I told you last week as I was promoting this Sunday and our speaker, Mark Scott, one of my very favorite preachers in all the world, and I am thrilled to have him here today. Uh, Mark served at Ozark Christian College for 28 years, and uh, then three years, for three, a period of three years, he left, and he went to a church in Colorado, and he worked there in that church, and then uh, Ozark was able to bring him back, and we are so happy about that. And, uh, he, he is in a position there where he teaches the student uh, preachers how to preach. And uh, I was in one of his classes just two weeks ago. I was at the college, and I purposefully went an hour earlier than what I was supposed to be there because I wanted to go to Mark Scott's class. And uh, so I'm just thankful to introduce him today. He is accompanied by his uh, wife, Carla, and uh, many of you have met Mark and Scott, bef- Mark and Carla, uh, before. They have been here uh, and preached for us. Uh, they are working on 42 years of marriage. Isn't that wonderful? And uh, when Carla told me that, I looked at her and she said, I was just 12 years old when we got married. Uh, they have uh, four children and. Uh, we're just, we're thankful for them to be here. Let's pray together, and I will then welcome Mark to the, to the stage. God, thank you for Mark and Carla. Thank you for their ministry through the many years uh, at Ozark and, and beyond. Lord, uh, bless him today as he preaches, and may his words uh, challenge us and teach us, encourage us, and sharpen us. In Jesus' name, amen. It is always a privilege to come to Community Christian here in Fort Scott. feel very much at home, even though we've been away from this area for, as Kevin mentioned, these three years. But it's always such a delight, such a wonderful, healthy congregation. I think every other student I've met in coming back to Ozark is from this church. I think. <laughs> I think. So I thank you for not only sending your prayers up to God for us and your money for the sake of the kingdom to us, but most of all, your most precious commodity, and that is students from this congregation. We really have a lot of them from this church, and you're to be thanked and to be appreciated for that, I think, in light of that kind of kingdom investment, and we are just delighted to have the chance. In fact, even before we made our physical move, Kevin was uh, saying, would you, would you come and be part of a sermon series to kind of kick it off? So glad to do that. The subject before us, though, is painful. You'll get to know that more even in the weeks to come. But I am to introduce, and I'm so glad he said just introduce. I am not here to solve. I so wish I could. But I'm here merely to introduce, which may mean to sort of tease you just a bit, about the subject of suffering. Oh, my, 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 my. It is so huge. It connects with us all the way from inconvenience, 
the little Toyota Corolla with 256,000 miles that I drove here this morning has a slight leak in the left rear tire. Okay. I checked it last night just to be sure. It had lost about four pounds, five pounds this last week. But I thought, good enough to come to Fort Scott on. So it needs to fit. It's an inconvenience. My wife looked for her sunglasses this morning after we got in the car. They must have fallen out of her purse. I'm surprised anything could fall out of her purse. But anyway, must have fallen out of her purse. Inconvenience. Suffering relates to everything from inconvenience to beheading. Yes? Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. And Al-Qaeda says... They're scared of those people. No wonder Philip Yancey calls this. He just lived up the road from us in Evergreen, Colorado. No wonder Philip Yancey calls this the problem that just won't go away. And maybe it would be a good thing for us to sort of start off this series this morning by dispelling a few myths. Because a lot of them surround this subject The great German pastor, Helmut Thielicke, said that American Christians have a very inadequate view of suffering. Maybe it's because we buy into certain myths. Can I list some for you real quickly? These all come from my good friend J.K. Jones's book, Waiting on God, which is a book about the book of Job and the suffering that Job went through. And we'll be looking at that this morning in this first hour. But here are the seven myths that my friend J.K. mentions. Number one myth, good people never suffer. It's not true, is it? Here's myth number two, bad people always suffer. Well, that's not true. Just look down the street. A third one is only sin causes suffering. That's not true. A fourth one is trust God and suffering will vanish. Some of you could stand up and give personal testimonies today. That that's not true. Number five is, if God cared. I noticed in the program folder, the the bulletin this morning, about the movie God's Not Dead. Have you seen that? that, that's That's the tough one, isn't it? In a fallen world. If God cared, then suffering would vanish. No, both seem to be true. Suffering has not gone away, and God really cares. Here's a sixth one. Work hard, and suffering will vanish. Any of you tried that one? Here's the final one. No one understands my suffering. Oh, yes, you're unique like everybody else. Yeah. Myths about suffering. And maybe it's best to locate this introduction today biographically. Now, the danger of this kind of preaching and teaching is that you can focus on certain individuals in the Bible who went through, in this case, tough times and came out victorious you can also, you can kind of marginalize God or scoot Jesus to the side where they don't have much at stake in this particular thing. So anytime you focus on a person, you run the risk of losing the hero of all the biblical narratives, which is God. We'll try not to do that today. But I think you'd have to agree with me that sometimes we really see this kind of thing best when it's located in people. And so I brought a couple of them with me to the pulpit today. Here's the predecessor in my world at Ozark Christian College, uh, Dr. Lynn Gardner, and he wrote this wonderful book that I would encourage you during this series maybe to take a look at. It's just entitled, entitled, Where is God When We Suffer? What the Bible Says About Suffering. 
And he just tells his story. He didn't want to do this. When he was writing this book, he said, I didn't want to do this. But all of us encouraged him, you've got to tell enough of your own story so people can locate suffering biographically. And he did. And I'll read you just a portion. October the 11th, 1999. Started out as any ordinary day. I went to my study at Ozark Christian College where I taught. My wife Barbara went to her job in the reference department of Joplin Public Library. The day soon became unlike any day we had ever experienced. I received a phone call from a lady at a local hospital. She wanted to reach Dr. Arntz, our son-in-law, because his brother-in-law, he's the son-in-law, his brother-in-law, you know who this is, had been killed in a wreck. She did not know that his only two brothers-in-law were my two sons. Our 34-year-old son, Mark, had been killed in a truck accident on I-44 near Waynesville, Missouri, about 8 a.m. In shock, I drove to the library and found my wife, Barbara. Mark's been killed in a wreck. I blurted out. It was the darkest day of our lives. I've not been down that road. Some of you have. As we came out of the library, our daughter, Kara, and her husband, Bob, drove up. Not knowing that we that heard, they came to tell us. They drove several miles. It took us to drive several miles to Mark's house. Several friends awaited us. It was hard to think coherently and to talk. We were in shock. A vast emptiness opened up within and crowded everything out. We remember little of what people said, but we will long remember their presence and support. That's a key. That's a key. Words cannot describe the loss we felt and feel, still feel and the gaping hole that is left in our family. My wife's anguished words, I have never hurt so much. Mm. And he goes on to talk about his um, lung, lung disease. He is a double lung transplant recipient, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. He goes on to talk about his wife Barbara's cancer it's just quite a little story and finally gets to the end of that chapter where he'll leave it alone and just go into what the Bible says. And this is the final paragraph. I think it's what you need today to go into this series. It is my prayer that this book will help you learn a Christian approach to suffering informed by the Word of God. I love that sentence. A Christian approach to suffering informed by the Word of God. It is also my prayer that churches will provide biblical teaching about suffering. There you go, Kevin. There's your series. To help people withstand the vicious trials experienced in suffering and to be more effective helpers to hurting people. That's what this is about, I guess. I brought another person. You can locate it in a person like my former boss and my co-worker, Lynn Gardner, but probably one of the best friends I have on earth, uh, besides my wife, is a fellow by the name of J.K. Jones. And a lot of students are just shocked to know that he actually was academically suspended from college once. <laughs> He got kicked out of Milligan College. And so he went in the military. That happened a lot in, when we were in school in the 60s and 70s. And this is his dark night of the soul. December 26th, 1973, one day after Christmas, I was guarding a string of KC-135 tankers for the United States Air Force. There was a foot of snow on the ground and the temperature was 15 below zero. I was alone and for the first time in my life, I truly missed home. The only person I saw during the entire eight-hour shift of duty was that old staff sergeant who would occasionally come around in his warm vehicle and ask me if I was cold. I was so down that I recall going over to the wheel of one of those large jets and leaning against it as if it was the only thing for me to do. I started to cry, one of those cleansing cries. Have you been there? 
Of course, the tears froze on my cheeks. For the first time in a long time, I prayed. You catch that? For the first time in a long time, I prayed. I needed some kind of answer. I'm not even sure if I knew what the question was. I couldn't see one good thing in my entry into the military. Two months later, I met the navigators on that base. Maybe that doesn't mean anything to you, but it was a literal lifesaver for me. All along, God was teaching me about his lordship, about waiting, about character building. Now listen, because this is where we're going. God was answering who, and I was asking why. We so often want to do that, don't we? It's natural. I get it. I've done it. Why? And yet this book I have up here, this other book I have up here, it says it's not so much the why, though this book has some why in it. It's really the who of suffering. So I want to talk to you in these two messages this morning about the who of suffering and the when of suffering. I will allude a little later to some slight things about why, but I think we need to locate this in the, the who. Now, my original plan was to sort of take a Duck Dynasty approach here today. Do I have any Duck Dynasty fans out there? We thought that was so silly and our kids got us hooked. But anyway, uh, there is Miss Kay and she has two dogs. One named Bobo and one named JJ. And I thought, I'll just go up to Fort Scott and pull a JJ. I'll just preach on Job and I'll preach on Joseph. JJ. But the more I wrestled with it, the more I looked over the outlines of what is to come in some of your teaching, the more I thought, that's going to be too much overlap. So we'll go with JH. How's that? Job and Habakkuk. Because one struggled with who, and one struggled with when, when it comes to suffering. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to just turn to them, to the book, the Old Testament book of Job. It may well be one of the oldest books in your Bible. I suppose Genesis chapter 1 and John chapter 1 lay before it. But pretty early on in the land of Uz, there was a man named Job. And long before an awful lot about Abraham and certainly about the cross, we read about this guy. Ezekiel says he was one of the three great people besides Noah and Daniel, the person of Job. The New Testament writers refer to him as if he was a real live, breathing person. And I think we'll learn some things if we come to him. Now, I need to tell you that this kind of literature that we're about to read is what the Bible calls wisdom literature. Okay, that would be like Proverbs. That would be like Song of Songs. That would be like Ecclesiastes. Wisdom literature. And probably before we venture into this, before you read through this, I hope maybe this week, that you will see that wisdom literature is just kind of different literature in the Bible. For one thing, I like to call with the wisdom literature of the Bible the backstage pass to Scripture. And the reason I say that is because well, the wisdom literature doesn't tell us about Jesus very much and his plan to save the world. The wisdom literature tells us why you need Jesus, why you need the story. Because if you look in the mirror, it will stare back at you and you'll find out that you're not a real good person. You need a lot of help from above and outside yourself. And the wisdom literature is kind of the backstage pass to why we need the whole rest of the Bible. 
Now, the other thing that you need to know about wisdom literature is this. Wisdom literature is upside-down literature. That is to say, things that wisdom literature says are always true, but only in their context. If you don't understand that, an awful lot of the book of Job will not make sense. For instance, let me give you an example outside of the book of Job. In Proverbs 26.4, it says this, Don't answer a fool according to his folly. You ever done that and it backfired on you? I've done that. I mean, there's some people that are just stubborn and moronic, and no matter what you say, it's not going to make a bit of difference. You might as well save your breath and don't cast your pearls before swine or what's holy to the dogs. So just stop it. Don't answer a fool according to his folly. That's what Proverbs 26.4 says. Guess what the next verse says? Answer a fool according to his folly. Now you say, how in the world could both of those be true? That's a contradiction in Scripture. No, it isn't. They're right next to each other in the verses. Sometimes you don't answer a fool according to his folly. You just forget it. Other times you say to that fool, all right, we need to come to Jesus' meeting because you're being a moron. Sometimes you actually, yeah, both are true in their context they are true. When you read the book of Job, will you cut the guy a little slack? He's gone through a bad, horrible, no good day. All right? So when he says things in chapter 3 about, I wish I'd never been born, and all that death talk of chapter 3, give, give him a break. And also when we read the remarks of some of his friends, <laughs> you talk about how to kill a friendship. When you read about his, his friends' advice, Keep it all in context. Very crucial. Now with that being said, I want to do just a quick running gears of the book of Job that might help us a bit. In the first chapter, uh, verses 1 to 5, that's kind of the prologue, and we find out something about this guy. He is blameless. He is upright. That's a Hebrew word that means straight. He's a priest for his family. There wasn't anybody like him in all of the East. He's a pretty good fellow. Then you go into chapter 1, verse 6, down to about verse 12. And there is this strange event that happens above us. That's one of the things when you address the subject of suffering that's so difficult. We can only see it from down here. We're not aware of that very real world above us where things are taking place. I'm not sure I understand this, but it talks about the angels, the sons of God, being the present. And guess who shows up? From roaming to and fro on the earth. The person that would be delighted to bring you down, your great adversary and enemy, Satan. And he accuses Job. That's what he wants to do with you. And I like what Rick Warren says, when the devil reminds you of your past, you just remind him of his future. So he's the accuser of the brethren. He shows up here. And maybe, just maybe, don't grade this, just think about it. Maybe the key line in the book of Job comes from the mouth of Satan. Here's his question. Will Job serve God for nothing? And the answer is, evidently, by the time we get to chapter 42, yes. Yes, Job will serve God. For, Job doesn't serve God because of what he gets. Job serves God because God is God. The who seems to put him over the edge about his life. So here's Satan accusing him and God is the one, this troubles me a bit, but God may have more confidence in you than you have in you. 
God's the one that says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Boy, it's a good thing Job didn't know about that conversation. <laughs> because I'm thinking if that was God talking about me up there, say, hey, 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 hey. Don't give him any ideas. That's what, God blesses us by not telling us everything. We'd put a gun to our head if it was otherwise. So, there is this battle and Satan goes to work. And beginning in verse 13 of chapter 1, oh my goodness, you have the Sabaeans, you have the fire, which I take to be lightning, you have the Chaldeans, and you've got a windstorm. We know something about that around here, don't we? And in a day, Job's life comes to ruins. And in chapter 1, verses 20 to 22, the key to chapter 1, Job goes through all of these difficulties, and the Scripture says, The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. And James Stewart Stewart, the greatest preacher in Scotland, said, Every angel got on the edge of the cloud to hear what Job would say next. Blessed, Barakah, blessed be the name of the Lord. And the scripture gives us a little, the narrator wants us to know, in all these things, Job didn't sin. In all of these things, he didn't charge God with wrong. So as a kid, I was raised in Sunday school, and my teachers told me, oh, we just need the patience of Job, we need the patience of Job. And then one day, as about a junior higher, I read the book of Job. And I'm thinking, well, he sounds pretty cranky to me. He sounds like he's rather ticked off at God. He maybe didn't sin, he maybe didn't charge God, but he'd sure like to argue his case with God, wouldn't he? Because he was asking why. And this book doesn't address why. All of his friends tried to tell him why. So that's not enough, and we enter into chapter 2, and the little survey in the first, what, 10 verses or so, is Satan says, skin for skin, skin for skin. Yeah, you've let me take his wealth, you've let me take his family, but you haven't let me touch his health. Skin for skin. And God says, all right, I'll tell you what. You're going to find that he's a good man. I'll let you touch him. You kill him. And so he gets these big boils. And he scrapes himself with potsherds. I don't know if you know what. That's kind of like an old dirty piece of pottery that's been busted. And then even his wife, though my wife would be quick to remind us all today, Job's wife lost something in all this too. Don't forget that. But she says, oh, you might as well just hang it up. Just, just curse God and die. And chapter 3 and on, it becomes quite a story. Now, the reason I told you you need to let wisdom literature be wisdom literature is because in chapter 3, there is more death talk. The Hebrew word is mot, mot. There is more death talk in, in Job chapter 3 than per square inch than anywhere else in the Bible. Death, death, death. I wish I'd never been born. Oh, pity the man who told my father, told my mother, and my father, it's a boy. I wish I'd have just died. And if you'll just give him a little slack, if you'd have gone through all this, wouldn't you say the same thing? Those cries of the heart do not reflect your real person. It's just that in the moment, it seems like this is terrible. This is awful. The nature of suffering. And it only varies for us, each of us individually here today in degrees. But then, there was a little part of chapter 2 I left out because it relates more to chapter 4 through about 37. And that is his three friends show up. Now he actually has a fourth, and I'll talk about that. His three friends show up. You know their names? Eliphaz, 
Bildad and um, Zophar. Their real names are Larry, Curly, and Mo. <laughs> Huey, Dewey, and Louie. You talk about how to kill a friendship. Except when the Sunday school teacher said that this is about the patience of Job and I read the book and he didn't seem very patient and then I read that God says all these friends of Job's are morons. But I read what they said and sometimes it made good sense to me. But the good thing, the first thing they did was they just came, they saw him from afar scraping himself and all they could do was sit down and cry. Now for all their mistakes... They did the right thing at first. Because probably when you've gone through suffering, you don't need somebody underlining that or drawing attention to you or worse yet, preaching a sermon at you. One of the things that Dr. Gardner would tell you that was just so difficult for he and Barbara when Mark was killed in that wreck was people came and say, well, I guess God just wanted him more than you did. No, we want our son here. People, well, people can be well-intentioned dragons. They might mean well, but they say the dumbhead, boneheaded things. We're all guilty. And so these guys begin, in fact, there's a series of three, three sets. First, there's Eliphaz. He gives him some advice, and Job responds. Then there's uh, Bildad, and he gives advice, and Job responds. Then there's Zophar, and he gives his advice, and Job responds. And that happens three times. Now, on the third time, Job, uh, uh, Zophar is not in there. So I don't know if he just got hungry or what, but anyway, he left. And you know what? When I read through this, and I just kind of pause through the reading of it, some of it makes pretty good sense to me. I'm reading in chapter 4, and I'm looking at verse 5. And this is Eliphaz who says to Job, But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. In other words, hey, Job, all God's chillin's got troubles. Why do you think you should be exempt? That makes pretty good sense to me. I look at verse 17 of chapter 4. Can mortal man be in the right before God? So God is God and man is man and we don't change places. That makes sense to me. I keep reading after Job's response to his friend. Then Bildad in chapter 8 begins to talk. Verse 4, if your children have sinned against him. Oh, it's easy in suffering to blame other people, isn't it? You know, it's like the little boy who had his report card at home, you know. And he says to his dad, who do you think is to blame, dad? Heredity or environment? We all want to blame the other person. Job acted as a priest. He sacrificed, it seems, in case his kids made a mistake during the day. This is, what, this is kind of interesting about Jesus Christ and the Gospels. When it talks about suffering, he just avoids, says Philip Yancey, he avoids the subject of causality. Uh, Luke chapter 13. Do you think that those people were worse sinners on whom the tower of Siloam fell? I tell you, unless you repent, you all likewise perish. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? It has nothing to do with that. I'm going to heal him. Shut up. I mean, that's, that's, that's the Gospels. And so here it says, well, somebody else. It's your children. That's the problem. Bildad says in chapter 8, verse 20, Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. So I guess that means, Job, you're not blameless. But the first chapter said he was. 
And then I keep reading here, and then I get to Zophar's remark in chapter 11, verse 14. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away. Let not injustice dwell in your tents. Is he accusing Job of having iniquity and lack of justice? This is why this bad stuff's happened to you, because you've been a bad boy. You know, all of that makes pretty good sense. And you just keep reading and you find your way through some of these things with the three sets of three. Chapter 18, Bildad speaks again. Verse 4, you who tear yourself in anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you or the rock be removed out of its place? Folks, we could go on and on with this. I'm just giving you a little taste to say that what these guys said, we've all said. Well, that bad thing happened to you because you're a bad person. Or that bad thing happened because you had a good time ride for a while and now it's your turn to suffer. And we've all thought those thoughts. His three friends. And what happens in the end is Job tries to contradict everything they're saying. He's saying, I didn't do that. I didn't. As God is my witness, I didn't do that. And then Job has one strange young friend. After Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar have done their thing, there's this fourth friend. And one scholar that I heard speak on him one time in graduate school years ago said that this was the only real friend Job had. His name is Elihu. Elihu is the younger man. And certainly in that culture of shame and honor, you let the older guys speak first. So Elihu let the other guys speak. He's not even named in the famous trio earlier on. But he comes along and finally says, Job, here's what I think you should do. Shut up. Just be quiet. And that's why Dr. James Strauss called his commentary on the book of Job the shattering of silence. We will never make sense of our suffering until, first of all, we just be quiet. We just be quiet in the presence of God. And we just try to listen for his voice and to make sense of it in this crazy place. So Elihu finally gets Job to be quiet, and Job is quiet. And by the time that Elihu gets done with him, guess where we find ourselves in the book? It's in chapter 38. And in chapter 38, guess who speaks if we'll just be quiet enough? The shattering of silence from on high. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. I could be wrong, but at that point, I would really be backpedaling, wouldn't you? And Job even later will say, I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke when I did not know. And God begins to argue from this perspective. Where were you? when I laid the foundation for the earth? Where were you when I made the ostrich? Where were you when I took care of the snow? Where were... God argues for three chapters His creative genius. It's not the why of suffering, it's the who of suffering. I'm God, you're not, you're finite, I'm infinite, there's going to be an awful lot that you're just not going to understand. That doesn't keep us from wanting to understand and striving for answers. It's just to say at the end of the day, I rather like getting into chapter 40 and 41 when God says to Job, where were you when I made Behemoth? And I don't know if you're one of those people that believe that dinosaurs and man were on the earth at the same time. I think it's very likely they could have been. I know that that's not what typical science says. But when it talks about this huge behemoth animal whose tail sweeps away the marshland, 
Oh my goodness. Then the footnote in my Bible says, probably a hippopotamus or an elephant. Yeah, they have a big tail, right? Come on. I don't know who the behemoth or the leviathan. I just know that God made the big creatures and God, telescope and microscope, you're going to need them both when it comes to God. And finally we get down to it and what we find out, strangely enough, is that while Job has cried out some pretty tough things against God, God justifies him. And God speaks to the oldest, Eliphaz, and says, now, <laughs> you're an idiot. But Job's going to sacrifice and pray for you, so I'll accept that. And then he has another family and he's got girls that he's got to beat the boys off the front porch with a stick. These gals are beautiful. A new family comes from him. And the double amount of animals, which may simply be symbolic. It seems like there'd be a lot of camels and a lot of horses. And a lot. But maybe it's just a symbolic number of completeness. And Job's life comes out good on the other end. The answer to the book of Job is not why we suffer. The answer to the book of Job is who. Now, it's not as if we don't have some why. I'm not trying to make a commercial today. But a little later in this wonderful book on what the Bible says about suffering, Dr. Gardner takes a whole article from Willie White, and there are 20 reasons that the Bible gives, several pages here, as to why suffering happens. If you want to know the why, suffering is the common lot of human beings. Number two, suffering came to mankind as a result of sin. Number three, suffering is not necessarily a penalty for the sufferer's sins. Number four, our suffering may be caused by the sins of others. Hello? Number five, Christians are not immune to suffering. Numbers, 20 reasons. If you want reasons, we've got reasons. But that's not the real issue, is it? At the end of the day, what you'd really like is for somebody to just kind of sit down by you and cry. Walt Whitman said it this way, I do not ask the wounded person how he feels. I, I used to do that, Kevin, when I made hospital calls. <laughs> I realized how stupid that was. Well, how you doing? Great, I'm just coming here for vacation. I think the food is great. Walt Whitman said, I do not ask the wounded person how he feels. I myself become the wounded person. You see, I kind of think that's the brilliance of the incarnation and the crucifixion. You remember what they called him in the Old Testament? He was a servant, but what kind? A suffering servant. Philip Yancey says that by Jesus taking on suffering himself, he dignified pain. The poem says, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chattered all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile, mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. I think our better prayer than why is to say, Lord, I'm hurting. It doesn't seem fair. I need you. And at the end of the day, I think that's what Job really knew. Because in chapter 13, we read these words. Though 
he slay me. Yet, we're going to talk about yet next service. Yet I will serve him. And these wonderful words from chapter 19, and I'll pray. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. You see what I mean? At the end of the day, it's not the why that will get us through. I could give you all these 20 reasons. You want to just photocopy this before I leave today? And you'd walk out not feeling a whole lot better. But what if I told you someone will share your foxhole? Now that, that might just get you through tomorrow. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, thank you for answering bigger questions for us than just why. Thank you for being a God who has invested, come, and been part of our pain. And we can know for sure that you, uh, you understand. So to our great high priest, who has been tempted at all points as we are yet without sin, to the one who can have sympathy with his people, we pray in Christ's name.